Thanks for joining us for another episode of the War on the Rocks podcast series. Uh, we're going to be talking today about uh, naval and maritime issues, and we've got some great guests that have joined us. We have Evan, Evan Montgomery, Senior Fellow at CSBA. We have Brian McGrath of the Hudson Center for American Sea Power. Is that right? And we have uh, International Man of Mystery, Admiral Chris Perry, uh, Fellow of the Royal United Services Institute back in the UK. Um, thanks so much for joining us, guys. And John Amble, actually, this is the first time John and I yeah. have been in at the same podcast because John just moved back to D.C. from London. So John Amble, managing under War on the Rocks. Happy to be here. Yeah. So we're going to talk about a lot of... We have a former Army officer, John Amble, and me, who used to work as um, a civilian for the Army. Of course, I'm very well positioned to talk about the sea power and lead a discussion on that. <laughs> so um, first, one of the biggest issues, obviously, with the future of uh, Western naval powers, how to handle... Uh, rising China, particularly in light of all the different territorial disputes. Brian, uh, Admiral Perry, you guys just came back from a big trip to Taiwan. What were some of the big takeaways that you guys had from that trip? Well, what can we start with? Uh, I think what we realized when we were in Taiwan is we're faced with uh, 20, 23 million people who are in an established, uh, vibrant democracy uh, with a thriving economy. But we're looking to maintain... Uh, their freedom to choose their future, but of course are constrained also by the fact that they have mainland China breathing down their necks uh, and looking to uh, reunite with them at some stage in the future. And there's a balance of expectations between mainland China and of course the people that live in Taiwan. Yeah, I was really struck by the, um, the number of very fine lines that the leadership in Taiwan have to walk, fine lines with the PRC, fine lines with the United States, um, you know, and I, I didn't go into the trip with a whole lot of preconceived notions, but I came out with some, um, some, some uh, I don't know whether they're insights, but I, I felt like, um, you know, as, as the cross-strait military balance has tipped decidedly in China's favor, relations between Taiwan and China have gotten better, which is a sort of an odd thing for a country that claims that they, you know, Taiwan that needs um, a great, great, uh, great many weapons. So I, I came out of this believing that the, the best thing for Taiwan's security is for China to be strong and stable and for the United States to be really strong and really present in the region so that the United States can be, um, can do the, the good, can do the bad cop role to China, so Taiwan doesn't have to do that itself. And, and I don't know necessarily that we're standing up to that role these days. I think the real problem for Taiwan is there is a wide perception globally that there's an inevitability to mm -hmm. Taiwan being absorbed into mainland China at some stage. Uh, we didn't get that impression in Taiwan, and Taiwan said, look, you know, we'll maintain the status quo for as long as it takes until we come together quite naturally. I think what struck us was that Taiwan is constantly seeking for a decisive edge in being able to deter mainland China. And we groped around, really, in our discussions with them as to what that would be. They're currently fixated on gaining a significant submarine capability in terms of sea and area denial themselves. Um, and I think, uh, I don't know if you agree, Brian, but we were rather sceptical that whatever they put in place, the PRC would just roll over them if, if they felt and take the the hits as they came across the, 
the straight. It might not necessarily be an amphibious attack. It could be an airborne assault attack. It could be an area suppression followed by a transit in. But we were searching with them, I think, Brian, for something that would be that would actually make the Chinese eyes water if they actually tried something preemptive. Um, and unless there's a guarantee that the United States will come to their aid, you can't help feeling that their capability, whatever they provide, is not going to be enough. And I think the people we spoke to spoke in terms of actually holding the Chinese long enough until the cavalry arrives. Mm -hmm. Do you agree, Brian? I do. I think it's a fair assessment. Um, I, it, it seems pretty clear to me that their, their desires are to try to make... Um, to make it painful enough uh, that China doesn't make that first move. Um, the, the problem, though, is that there's a question sometimes about whether their investments and whether the things that they're, that they're buying um, serve that end as efficiently as other choices that they could make. There's a professor at the Naval War College, a guy named Bill William Murray, Bill Murray, um, who's done some really great work on, you know, sort of a porcupine sort of strategy, making themselves indigestible, um, civil defense, stockpiling water and fuel and parts, and, um, and then also concentrating on things like um, rocket, rocket attacks, GRAM, the kinds of stuff, shoulder-launched weapons, the sort of stuff that you can use to make the last couple of miles of that amphibious forces trip to your shores, incredibly painful. Um, but I mean, the thing, the thing we were saying all the way through, though, is that your porcupines get squashed by vehicles on the road. <laughs> um, and what you really need to do is develop a scorpion approach, where you've got a decisive sting uh, that will really hurt the PRC if they try something. Um, can anyone but the United States provide that sort of a sting, though? Can Taiwan? I mean, you give Taiwan advanced missile, uh, advanced weapon systems platforms that could just provoke China or antagonize China. I mean, that's a good point. That's I the mean, fine line. Yeah, I mean, they're constantly thinking if we get too much of a capability, that's the same as declaring independence in terms of provoking China. Uh, I mean, they've already got Patriot, and they pack three uh, for air defense. Submarines, they're looking for eight submarines. Uh, which probably five would be operational at any one time if you can get somebody to build it for them. That's the first, uh, the first thing, and the second thing is, you know, what what would that do in terms of um, uh, the deterrent balance, if you like? I, I think the critical thing for us who want a good solution there is what role does Taiwan play in forward defence uh, of any situation where China actually comes out to the first and second island chain uh, and starts to actually test the system. What role is Taiwan going to play? Is it going to be a neutral space on the board? Is it something the United States will look to exploit? What about Japan? Japan and Taiwan have a very close relationship in everything except the political and the military at the moment. But you can't help feeling that if China and Japan had a confrontation, then China's calculation would take in the benefits of obviously neutralizing Taiwan uh, as part of the deal. And so somebody, I think, has got to work out in the United States, uh, what the role of Taiwan would be if the confrontation levels between uh, the US and China stepped up. Because you just can't ignore it, because China won't. That's the point. I think you raised a really interesting issue. I was uh, on a similar trip uh, to the one that you gentlemen were on, I think, uh, about eight, nine months ago. I was struck by um, the Taiwan 
both in the political side and, and the military establishment, uh, their emphasis on the submarine issue in particular, um, to the point where it almost crowded out thinking about other yeah, other, other right. opportunities, um, and that they were um, not giving enough weight to some of the vulnerabilities. I've actually got to prepare a talk on Taiwan's undersea capabilities this weekend, and, and you hit on some issues that I'm that I've been wrestling with in terms of how many submarines they could actually purchase, the opportunity costs that go with that, because it's a pretty big bill in terms of what they're looking at, um, how many would be operational at any one time. Five is probably, I think, a high estimate when you look at how limited their current submarine capability is. Um, and then the vulnerability of the uh, of the boats that aren't in port. Uh, and also um, the infrastructure that they might invest to protect it. I was looking back on some, uh, some stories from about 2001, uh, when this obviously first came with the Bush administration um, signing an agreement to provide uh, eight diesel-electric submarines. And there was, not surprisingly, some serious discussion about building, you know, digging out entire mountains that could serve as hardened submarine pens, which is a huge, enormous bill on top of the actual, uh, you know, procurement and operations costs. So uh, they seem very, very focused on this issue. I think it crowds out thinking in, in other areas, and, and there's some significant vulnerabilities that... Um, well, one of the things we did discuss is if we're planning for the future, these submarines will probably take about eight to ten years to procure anyway. And so we're thinking about other forms of underwater uh, defense and offense and with unmanned technologies, bottom arrays, advanced captor-type mines brought into the 21st century. Even mini-midget sub submarines, yeah. Uh, yeah, which they can procure you know, far greater yeah, numbers. Buy them from the Iranians, perhaps. <laughs> but you know, these, whole, these things are all a possibility, and what we talked about was an undersea network rather than individual platforms actually might be more suitable mm -hmm. for them. I thought we were... Uh, one of the things I came away with, and we talked about this on our bus quite a bit, was the, the, the lost opportunity um, at the strategic level or the opportunity that doesn't seem to be taken in the United States of talking up this representative democracy that is Chinese and that is working and that is capitalist and um, and free and we don't talk about it. It doesn't get much doesn't get much press in the United States, but it's a country that's working. We drove up and down the breadth of it and uh, and obviously, Taipei is a first-rate city. Um, and everything's efficient. Frighteningly efficient. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, Trains leave on time. Streets are clean. Windows are clean while you're looking through them. It's that sort of level of yeah. efficiency. I think it's absolutely right, Brian. This is something that needs to be talked up. But the interesting thing is they get 8 million mainland Chinese visiting every year. And when they're asked, don't you want to live like this? They say, of course we want to live like this, but we don't trust the transition of 1.2 billion people, right. except under the tutelage of the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah. We don't let go of the Communist Party. It's a giant Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Uh, but there's this idea that its historic experience suggests you remove that central control, then there's anarchy and there's splitism, as the Chinese call it, amongst the provinces in China, and they're terrified of that. Yeah. Just to broaden the issues more to the larger regional issues and um, all of the territorial disputes, it only took, you know, it took the Obama administration quite a while to finally come around and say that we don't recognize the 9-dash line as valid. And they which, did, which is now a 10-dash line, by the way. The 10-dash line. Yeah, we we, we had another dash. No, that's 10. We, that passports. Which is another, you know, it took, and, it, and they did it very quietly through a sort of mid-level official and congressional testimony. And Evan, I, I wonder if you could walk us through why it took so long, and where where do you think the administration's thinking on this? 
I certainly uh, don't want to speak for the administration. I uh, don't have any real deep insight into exactly what they're thinking. So, so just to be clear, you're speaking for the administration? That's exactly, okay. exactly what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> I, you know, the, the Japanese have been really focused on this, this issue of the gray zone, which gets in with, I mean, you're talking about the South China Sea, but um, there's a similar dynamic going on in the East China Sea as well. And, um, you know, I suspect... I think there's a lot of difficulty, you know, grappling with what this this challenge is. These salami slicing tactics, and it's taken a little time to figure out, you know, what the implications of that are. I mean, I don't know if if Brian you in particular would agree, but it seems to me over the past four or five years, there's actually been a significant shift in terms of recognizing the strategic challenge that China poses to the United States. You know, my sense is that five years ago there wasn't a lot of consensus about that, and I think that's changed. Um, that consensus, I think, was sort of born out of the, the Taiwan problem in particular. And so you saw a lot of focus on you know, China's A2AD capabilities and the, the high-end threat and the possibility of a major conflict in East Asia, and that got a lot of attention. You know, suddenly, the last couple of years, we've had this focus on the gray zone, territorial disputes, uh, use of paramilitary forces, water cannon fights, you know, whatever it is. You know, I think there's just a, there's a lag in terms of trying to figure out what the significance of that is and how exactly we respond to it. One of the great dirty little secrets of the region is that Taiwan has the exact same territorial claim exactly. that PRC has. Yeah. Um, uh, putting that notion for, aside for a second, I think the o Obama administration um, had a tough time figuring out how it wanted to deal with China and exactly what its path forward was for, I'd say, at least the first two years of the administration. But then they figured it out, or at least they, they got on a, on a path. Um, and they started doing, I thought, some pretty innovative things. Uh, the, the LCS is to Singapore, the Marines in West uh, Australia, the negotiations that are ongoing in the Philippines. I, I, I'm almost certain um, we'll have some kind of a presence back in the Philippines within a couple of years. So that it took them a while, I think, to, to, get, to get their act together, to figure out exactly how they wanted to do it. I don't think there needs to be any confusion on this issue. Um, China and almost everybody else is a signatory uh, to the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. Almost everybody else. Yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't want to mention friends and <laughs> present cousins. We know each other. And you've got a strange Could situation. Could you explain, just for some of our yeah. listeners might not know what that you've is. You've got a strange situation where the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, which sets the maritime, not territorial, boundaries, which says that most states have jurisdiction out to 12 miles, but the right of innocent passage for everybody within it, then an economic zone out to 200 uh, nautical miles. Everybody accepts that, uh, those that are ratified. Now, the key thing is, of course, that China has ratified but breaks the rules. United States has not ratified but actually abides by the rules <laughs> uh, and enforces them as well. And there seems to be this vacuum in the Asia-Pacific where people are tiptoeing around the issue of what is legal. Uh, and where it's quite clear in the UN Convention Somehow we're, allow, we're allowing China to interpret it with Chinese characteristics. Now, whenever I see the words Chinese characteristics, it means they get what they want. Uh, and it's set in the mould of what the Communist Party wants. Now, it seems to me that um, over the next few years, we're going to see increasing pressure and tests on the international system. We've already seen the Chinese... Um, entering into other people's economic zones, most notoriously Malaysia's down at the James Shoal, 
with an amphibious group where they simply took possession of a shoal that is 50 miles from Malaysia but 1500 miles from China. Uh, and this sort of cavalier behaviour is just what we need to actually stop and say no, the UN Convention which you subscribe to and ratified and in the preamble it says quite clearly China that you actually forswear all historic claims. That was part of the deal. Now China of course has come back and said well you know we, we, we weren't part of setting all this up. That's a manifest untruth. They were part of the original negotiations all the way through. They had some of their issues dealt with. They don't like what they've signed up to and they're tinkering around the edges of it. Now, it seems to me that the weakness is that we're not supporting the countries of the region sufficiently strongly and saying, look, if you get into trouble with China, and Philippines, Vietnam, Japan are, then we will support your legal case. And I don't think it's weakened by the fact that America hasn't signed up. We know why America hasn't signed up. It's to do with uh, submissions to the international courts and other things like that, which are in defiance of many of your conventions here, uh, and one can understand that. But you do abide by the rules, and you do enforce them uh, when you can. Um, and so there needn't be any confusion on this issue, and we need to be straight with the Chinese, because otherwise we're going to get this incremental nibbling away at international law, and suddenly we find ourselves excluded from the Asia-Pacific region simply uh, because China isn't abiding by the rules. As, as much as... Uh... It seems that the politics are catching up and awareness is catching up in Washington about what needs to be done and what might need to be done in the future. Uh, you know, the procure procurement cycle obviously takes a lot more time. Is the United States and its allies, such as the UK, uh, building the right sort of Navy to deal with these challenges? And, you know, we touched earlier about how the uh, PLA plan, PLA Navy operates very differently in the South and East China Sea. It's not just these sort of more traditional conventional naval tactics, but fishing boats and oil rigs and things like that. How is the U.S. Navy going to deal with this, and does it have the right uh, kit? Well, I mean, if you're in a bad neighborhood, you go armed. It's as simple as that. And the PLA Navy and Coast Guard, of course, deploy quite significant power in their Coast Guard vessels. If you look, like the, if you look at some of the cutters they have, they look like frigates. And they're there in case it gets rough. What we have to be prepared for in our force structure and our deployments is the ability it could go hot at any time. You could have a one-on-one -on -one confrontation. I think what's going to add a bit of spice to the mix is the fact that soon we're going to have large numbers of unmanned vehicles, actually you know, Triton uh, and some of these other large um, patrol UAVs going around. And we're going to see increasing confrontations between UAVs. <laughs> so what is the seriousness of that? So UAV meets UAV and splashes the other one. How many UAVs do you lose before you actually get serious about it? Before you put manned platforms in to make, to make up a confrontation. I'm not sure whether it's escalatory or de-escalatory to have unmanned vehicles confronting each other. I haven't worked it out yet. Um, but we are going to see armed UAVs because you're going to have to protect. I mean, the size of the investment for Triton, for example, you can't afford to lose too many of those. It's like losing an MPA. So it's about to get very complicated there. I mean, my view is uh, Chinese think that actually they can keep pushing and they'll keep pushing until they meet some resistance. At the moment, the Philippines are taking legal action. They're taking China to the International Tribunal. It uh, doesn't please China very much. Vietnamese are quite robust. 
But they've had a bad experience in the past with China uh, in disputing a shoal uh, in the Spratlys. So everybody's looking for U.S. leadership. There's no question about that. Whether we've got the right sort of ships or not, you don't argue with an Aegis cruiser uh, at the end of the day. Uh, and I think the issue is you don't want to be caught in a local situation, a local episode, actually underarmed. That's the key issue. You have to put forces in place where if there is a one-on-one -on -one confrontation, what I call an encounter action, you either have to be able to face down what is uh, coming against you, or you need to be able to act uh, to stop yourself being uh, coerced. Brian, I know you have some strong thoughts about these issues. I th you know, I, I decidedly believe that we um, don't have a large enough Navy for the jobs that we wish for it to do. If, we, if the nation didn't want the U.S. Navy to do the things that it does around the world, um, we could make it smaller. But we, but we like our position of leadership. We like uh, what the U.S. Navy brings in terms of uh, ensuring that global markets work efficiently and global trade works efficiently. And, you know, every now and then you hear about some pirates here and there, but those kinds of things are, are rounding errors in terms of the uh, impact on, on the world economy. Um, when it comes to a, a Navy that is optimized for combat against a pure competitor, we're in pretty good shape for the time being. Need to stay on. Um, yeah, the but you know, uh, um, <clears throat> if you look, if you take uh, the amount of money that we spend on shipbuilding every year, and that, and I use shipbuilding and, and fleet size as a cutout for the whole navy. That's Carrier air wings get rolled up in that, and all of the things that go along with being a first-rate navy. Um, if you if you just apply historical um, averages to how much we spend, ship uh, service lives, all of the the things that go into how big your fleet is for a given investment, um, we are we are dramatically under resourcing. Um, the Navy that we have today, a 289-ship Navy. Um, we're, we're not spending nearly enough money just to keep that Navy going. Uh, if you sort of extend these graphs out, we're looking at a 240 to 250-ship Navy by the time uh, you get to the end of this 30-year shipbuilding plan. And if you move that down proportionally, we're talking about probably eight aircraft carriers. Or nine, unless... Unless we decide to keep 11 aircraft carriers and dramatically cut submarines and surface ships and amphibious ships and those sorts of things. Um, um, but we, I, I, I have a sense that, uh, you know, we're in pretty good shape right now. But that's only because uh, China has only in the last 15 years started its, its naval modernization. Um, and... The, the the trend lines are not in our favor. Uh, I, I would I, I look. China doesn't have to have a navy that's bigger and more powerful than the U.S. Navy. They just have to have a power a navy that's more powerful and stronger over there. Then that's what we're the forces we're willing to deploy over there. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I think it, it's probably time uh, for the U.S. to actually demand more from its allies. Um, you've got the widest range of alliances and partnerships in the world. 
and you need to start calling in some of those favours. Uh, as Brian hinted just then, we've got a situation where the freedom of the seas and the navigation that we have depended on for the last 500 years to maintain um, the global trading system uh, is under threat from major powers and also irregular threats as well. And in that, uh, the United States bears the greatest burden for stopping state-based threats actually impinging on that system. Now, if we're going to stop China and Russia actually closing down bits of the world ocean, um, then we have actually got to put in place sufficient forces to deter and defeat threats to, to that. Um, in my, Brian knows, I've got my latest book out, it's called Superhighway, Sea Power in the 21st Century. The point I make is... We'll link to it on the page. The, thank you. Yeah. The, 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 um, the point I make is that the, the sea is the physical equivalent of the World Wide Web. And all of us depend on globalization, particularly the United States, uh, in keeping uh, the world ocean open for trade uh, and making sure that we don't get back to a pre-Grotian situation where we have closed seas instead of open seas. And we've got several major powers today threatening to close down bits of the world ocean. And that will take us back to a period 500 years ago before Columbus sailed, before Vasco da Gama went round the Cape. Now, if all of us agree in the free world, what I'm beginning to think is the maritime world order, and that's probably the Anglosphere, North America, Australia, New Zealand, Japan's including that, India, uh, we're almost in a Mackinder-esque sort of Eurasia against Rimland again. Now, if that's the case, um, everybody who's involved in the Rimland enterprise has to help the United States. And I, I, I believe, for one, that Europe is not stepping up to the plate in global terms to assist the United States. If the United States goes down to 250 warships, then the others have got to make up the difference. And we've got to deploy to protect the freedom of the seas on which our prosperity, security and stability depend. And the real problem is this message is not out there. We call it sea blindness in the United Kingdom. And we've got to do a lot better to say, you know, the last service that you should be cutting right now at a time when China under Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping himself has said, this is a maritime century and China intends to be part of it. And what and refers to its blue territory, blue yeah. soil. Yeah, far seas, near seas, everything. But he says quite clearly, the threats that we face, this is Xi Jinping, not me. He says it's piracy, it's terrorism, and maritime hegemonism. And that is code for the United States. <laughs> you know. So the threat is out there. And all this week I've been at a conference where people are dancing around China. I've heard Admiral Locklear saying this week, oh, we've got to engage more cooperatively with China. China right now is stepping up and saying, come on, bring it on. Uh, and in the coming years, they're going to demonstrate more capability to bring it on. And we've got to accept that. They're both cooperative and competitive. Well, before, the, before we, I want to return to that issue of closed seas in a bit, but two things before then. One is, um, I first met Admiral Perry nearly a decade ago at something called the McKinder Forum, actually, coincidentally. He brought up McKinder. And it was this conference, and my favorite memory from the conference was he tried and totally failed to explain to me how cricket worked. Um, I still, and this is, this was years ago. And since then, and since then I lived in London and I still don't, still don't understand how it works. Uh, but the other thing is, is I know Evan has some interesting thoughts on how we can be more competitive military that he's actually recently written about in, in, um, in Asia. And then I'd like to turn to the issue of closed season a bit. 
Um, sure. So, I mean, just a couple things before before hitting that. Um, you know, I, I tend to agree with with Brian's assessment about um, the trend lines. I mean, I think there are some some positive trends in U.S. Navy force structure uh, in terms of submarine building rates and uh, putting additional uh, capacity into future Virginia class submarines, experimenting with laser defenses on surface ships. Uh, obviously, the new class decision looms large in terms of the, the future of the carrier air wing. Um, so there, there's good to go with the uh, the bad. Um, and kind of coming back to your original question about you know, the, some of the paramilitary challenges that China uh, poses in the region, I mean, you know, my view would be that the United States does not build and optimize its Navy to deal with you know paramilitary threats, certainly not in East Asia. But that is a very real issue for some of our allies. And this comes back to, you know, if you do want your allies to carry a bit more of the water, and, and I think we all tend to agree on that, um, you know, what is that, what exactly do you want them to do? I mean, this is a real debate, for example, uh, for Japan right now about, you know, do you want to invest in your Coast Guard capability and have sort of a symmetrical paramilitary capability uh, that you can use to compete with China, um, you know, or do you invest more in the, the MSDF or, or the, the GSDF and, and uh, have those, um, you know, a, uh, a military response to these paramilitary challenges. It's something they're grappling with. It's something that they don't know how much the United States is waiting, but we have to grapple with what we want them to do um, and then potentially, you know, help them see that and push them in, in, in a direction if there's a consensus on our end. Um, Evan, can I just interrupt sure. you there? I think the critical issue in all these things, and, I, and I've seen it throughout Asia, and I know it happens in Europe, is for the first time in my career, people are asking, will the United States come? And that's in Japan, that's in Taiwan, that's in the Baltic states. And that seems to hover as an elephant in the room, if you pardon the mixed metaphor, over every single... That'd be something to see an elephant hovering. Hovering elephant. I'll, I'll make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> if anyone can. Um, but the elephant in the room here is, is that, and it's the first time that I've really felt that as being something that is all around the world right now. Will the Americans come? And there's real doubt in many countries that the Americans will come. Because a lot of people's defence estimates, also their provision, is based on that simple fact. And, this, and, and we have to understand that um, those defence estimates, in some cases, they come to conclude. Other nations come to conclusions about about how they're going to act, and they say the United States is on our side. We need to we need to bandwagon with them. The downside of a less active and a, and, a, and a situation where the United States is seen as having backed up is um, people will people tend to think well they'll just build themselves up and they'll and they'll, maybe if there's an art well possibly or they just start cutting deals. Yeah. Um, it's the easier think, thing to do. I think your your boss at CSBA referred to it as the Finlandization of uh, Southeast Asia. And yeah. Southeast Asia is also in hot. Economically, I mean, it's very difficult. Australia's biggest trading partner is China, and yet its strategic partner is the United States. And there's no easy, I mean, this is the, the classic strategic dilemma. If you pull back a little bit, or, you know, are your allies going to bandwagon with your competitor? Are they going to, um, you know, are they going to balance on their own a little bit more and, and carry a little bit more water? And, and you know, it's there's no easy answer to that. You really don't know. No, we are seeing a little bit of balancing, right? I mean, I, yeah, Australia like, and Japan and India, they're all and I, think those, I mean, I think those are all, I, I think you're absolutely right. Those are, those are encouraging signs. I mean, Japan, you know, we say we want Japan to do more, um, and I'd like to see Japan do more. Uh, Japan is constrained in many different ways, politically and economically, from doing more. But what they've done in the past few years is actually 
very positive. I mean, in terms of focusing on island defense in the Southwest Islands, uh, in terms of starting to shed tanks and artillery that they don't need to defend Hokkaido against a you know Russian invasion. Um, you know, they're making some difficult choices, um, and given their situation, they're they're particularly difficult, and they're moving in the right direction. Vietnam is doing a lot of positive stuff, developing really its own little anti-access area denial network with submarines, maritime strike aircraft, and land-based coastal defense cruise missiles. I mean, I think that's that's very positive. Australia, as well, is obviously, um, you know, to a large extent, in lockstep with the United States uh, on a lot of these issues. And, and, I, and in this case, looking for us to see, you know, just how far the rebalance is going to go and what their, what their role is in it. I think rather than level of effort in a lot of cases, um, what it really is... The issue is figuring out what you want states to do and communicating that. Because what I hear less than is the United States going to be there is what does the United States want us to do and how do we how do we plug into whether it's air sea battle or the offset strategy or you know whatever term you want to use for for what, what we're doing. What is TX is called? Well, uh, offshore, offshore control. control. Offshore control. So it's, <laughs> it's not here, so I can't critique it. Um, in, in TX track for reference for our listeners that didn't listen to our last podcast. He has trash talked uh, Brian a bit in the last one, so Brian's just returning the favor. I will rise above TX's <laughs> gutter tactics. You're you are, you are a bigger man than I, but uh, but I think that you know thinking through. Can you just explain that to me because I'm I'm just a passive spectator to this this combat. Oh, there's this there's this whole there was this I, I found. Um, very tiresome debate um, about uh, offshore control versus air-sea battle. But a lot of it proceeded, and I know you, you know what air-sea battle is, but a lot of it proceeded without really understanding what air-sea... The, the problem was is air-sea battle was never messaged, right? And no one really understood what it was in the public sphere. And, but, it, but air-sea battle is what we did to the Japanese, isn't it? Is it? Isn't it the same as we went across the Pacific and did to the Japanese? That's the thing, is it, it became this word that meant in the <laughs> yeah. public space at least anything. And I, that's actually how I originally met Brian. Uh, I knew TX before, but uh, I invited, I was introduced to Brian and invited Brian to debate TX about air-sea battle and offshore control back in 2011 or 12? One of those. I don't remember. 12. I just remember that TX was a pyromaniac in a field of strong <laughs> Uh, let's be all right. Let's move on. Let's take us a valued, valued friend and one of the rocks, rocks contributor. I want to. There's two other major issues I want to address, but first I want to discuss uh, major War on the Rocks tradition. Uh, what we're drinking. Here we are at the uh, lovely Jefferson Hotel Quill Bar, who has always hosted us, and it's a beautiful place to hold a podcast. Uh, we have a couple people here that aren't drinking, but they're going to substitute by telling drinking stories because they have long and storied naval careers that they can draw upon. But first, since since Evan is drinking, we'll just start with him. I'm glad I am, so now I don't have to tell a story, but yeah. I'm uh, gl- uh, drinking a glass of uh, Tempranillo. All right. Now, Brian, uh, you're, a, you're a drinker of Virginia Gentleman, or you used to be. It was. I was. I stopped drinking in uh, the summer of 1993 after concluding that it was the only thing that the, the harder I practiced at it, the worse at it I got. <laughs> um, but the th- the... My poison of choice uh, as a young man, as an undergraduate at the University of Virginia, was a bourbon called Virginia Gentleman, and we drank it like water. Um, um, and I, as I was thinking about this day today, I, I found found myself going back into uh, many many tales of glory that I can't I, I, you know share with a with a, a, a civil audience here, but. Virginia Gentleman was always at the heart of uh, of a lot of good times. All right. Admiral? 
Well, I'm a lifelong teetotaler. Okay. I, I come from a family that doesn't drink, and I've never drunk in my life. Um, but I have lots of friends who do. And I think probably the story I'd like to tell is one of my friends at Oxford when I was at university, who after a fairly good dinner where we had a lot of booze put around, um, went out and set off all the fire alarms in the college. And the um, fire engines turned up. And he bimbled out into the street, saw the fire engine, got in the front of it, played room, 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 and was rather surprised to see the thing moving along and all the pipes blew out the back. He was stopped by a policeman in Oxford High Street. He gave his name as Hugh Trevor Roper, which was the professor of history at the time. <laughs> uh, he said with a hyphen, apparently. And, uh, and, and then when the policeman said, are you aware you're driving a fire engine? He said, good God, I thought it was a telephone box. <laughs> we know this because uh, it appeared in the Oxford Mail the following day. Uh, and uh, he managed to make his escape. Uh, and obviously it was told, but I have to tell you, commanding a ship uh, and going ashore with your lads is a question of actually learning very early how to pace yourself in terms of insanity as the evening wears on, and you have to, not just affect, but you have to enjoy enjoy what's going on and come back in the morning with your lads at 6 o'clock. They line up, you go on board, you're ready for the Queen at 8 o'clock. But the advice I, I would give to anybody who drinks is that when you go ashore, and you stay sober the whole time, you become less entertaining as the, <laughs> as the evening wears on if you've been drinking. And the other thing is, um, when I get back, uh, the guys who I've come back with who've been drinking are going to feel better during the day. If you're a teetotal and you've been up all night, okay, you never feel better until you get to bed <laughs> later that day, I can tell you. So there we go. That's good. Spot on. Well, we, we, you discussed closed seas earlier, and it seems... Um, they're not. They're not quite closed, uh, but NATO has certainly become, let's put it, less accustomed to operating in places like the Black Sea and the Baltic Sea. And now that we've seen a more assertive Russia, again putting it lightly, recently, what are the implications of that for for NATO specifically for the United States and its most important ally, the United Kingdom? Well, I mean, I think what you have to realize, uh, everybody has to realize, is two things about the geography of Europe. The first thing is its peninsula, uh, and it's, uh, you have the Baltic and the Black Seas defining that. And historically, Russia has always been paranoid about another uh, power dominating the Baltic and or the Black Sea. And that 18th century paranoia has returned. And in Putin, we see almost uh, a strategy that could have been formulated by Catherine the Great in terms of its approach to uh, Western Europe and its near abroad. And certainly what we, I think we're seeing in Ukraine at the moment is an attempt to uh, reform what was called New Russia, which essentially was the Crimea and the whole uh, coastal path all the way through uh, to the eastern Ukraine. Um, and at the moment we are showing ourselves in NATO pitifully undermanned and underarmed in deterring uh, Russian adventurism in both those seas at the moment. Uh, we had a pretty good position uh, in the Black Sea. We were able to say to Ukraine in 1997, give up your nuclear weapons and your borders will be guaranteed. <laughs> well, good luck with that. With no enforcement mechanism. Yeah, absolutely. The goodwill of uh, Yeltsin's Russia, essentially. Um, in the Baltic, we, we have three indefensible Baltic states whose strategic depth is almost as bad as that of Israel's. 
but without the alert status to be able to defend them. And one of the biggest problems in mainland Europe at the moment is that the NATO readiness level is so incredibly low uh, that we couldn't resist a stand-up. Uh, what, what do you mean by that practically? Well, if, if let, let's just say the Russians decided to uh, move against the Baltic states tonight, this Friday. We don't have the forces in place to deal with that, or even threaten to deter them. Um, you've got this enclave of Kaliningrad between Lithuania and Poland. You've got 15,000 Russian troops in there, a large number of armoured vehicles, an S-400 air defence system, the best air defence system in the world, and several modern systems. So the reinforcement would be very difficult. Uh, but right now, I doubt the ability of NATO to be able to deter a determined push by Russia, not even coming from mainland Russia, but from Kaliningrad, to destabilise or even uh, invade the Baltic states. Now, given that we have Article 5 in place, which is an attack on one, is an attack on all, um, we could wake up one morning and find Russia all over the Baltics, and we haven't reacted. And they can do it from a standing start. We can't. So we don't match them symmetrically in terms of our readiness levels. Uh, and what gave us the, the key there is that when Ukraine was effectively invaded, I've never heard of four regiments going camping on holiday in somebody else's country before. When it was invaded, NATO didn't even raise its alert status. We were so disabled by that action. It would have been a simple thing to do to bring air, land and sea units up to a higher state of alert. It would have signalled to Putin that we were serious. And yet both the United Kingdom, our Foreign Secretary and President Obama said there is no military aspect to what we're going to do. It's all diplomatic and economic. It reminded me of um, a former colleague of mine said that the United States should have done what Nixon did in 73 with the October War and raised, just without saying anything, raise the nuclear alert status. But then I later read more into that incident and it turns out Nixon was passed out and Kissinger and, and Haig did it without his authorization. Um, but it had the right effect on the Russians, on the Soviets at the time. Um, I mean, I mean the, the problem is we've, we've spent three months not speaking the same vocabulary as Putin. And you know, he's sitting there in his T-90 tank and he's saying, you're just throwing economic and diplomatic things at me that are bouncing yeah. off. Brian, as a, someone that commanded a destroyer, where, where does the U.S. Navy operate? Where doesn't it operate that much anymore and why? And how has that changed since the end of we the have a We have a, a two-hub strategy. Um, and those two hubs for uh, what, what are referred to as um, um, credible combat power are the um, Indian Ocean slash Arabian Sea and the Western Pacific. We used to be a three-hub Navy up until the uh, early 90s, and that third hub was in the Mediterranean. Um, three hubs generally meant uh, a force that was sized to provide one aircraft carrier continuously in each of those three hubs, and one, one aircraft carrier battle group continuously in each of those three hubs, and one amphibious ready group in each of those three hubs. We're down to roughly two of each. Um, I mean, one of each in two hubs now. We virtually abandoned the Mediterranean. Um, we use we use uh, assets that are on their way to the to the Central Command AOR um, to do some exercises and the like in the Mediterranean. We are, in fact, um, forward deploying ballistic missile defense uh, destroyers to 
um, to Spain, to our, to, uh, our base in Spain. Um, and that gets us more operational availability in the ballistic missile defense mission. But as that mission, um, it'll be interesting to see what happens with those assets as that mission stands up land-based, right? These, these ships were a, a stopgap measure in, uh, or the, the first phase of this ballistic missile defense uh, system for Europe. As the sites um, in, in, in Europe come online, what we do with those ships will be interesting. But again, it's just a handful of destroyers. We used to have a carrier battle group and an amphibious ready group. If you had forces like that in the Mediterranean, um, and you think about you think about things like the the Libyan operation, you think about the Arab Spring, you think about Putin making noise in the Ukraine. Um, you have the ability to to within two or three days have a significant amount of. Um, naval power in the Black Sea. We didn't have that. The power just wasn't there in the Mediterranean to, to send the message. When, we, when, uh, when the first red line with Syria came up, and then the second red line with Syria came up, we did not have significant combat power in the Mediterranean to back up um, the, the president's desires. Now, that power could have come somewhere from somewhere else, could have come from land-based air, you know, but they would have been long flights from countries that would have had uh, potentially had a veto over the use of those those aircraft, and that's what what both the admiral and I, you know, like to think about navies is you get to use them without anybody's permission, and if they're not there, then you don't get to use them at all. I mean, again, I think I don't think the United States needs to beat itself up here. It's a question of actually saying to the Europeans. Actually, that's your patch. And it should have been French, British, German, dare I say, ships that need to deal with this. Now, the other issue I think that is here is that the Russians and the Chinese believe that most combat power is best in the United States. I don't think, I, I would say as far as much that they don't take the European capabilities seriously. They should. What they don't take seriously is the European political will to do something. Uh, and it's almost as if... Uh, always caveats. Always. We have to talk about the 800-pound gorilla f floating in the room, right? <laughs> which is the Royal Navy's dramatic well, decline. Let's, let's, talk, let's, let's talk about that. We, you know, I, yep. I, I'm, uh, I've been accused of being, and I'm actually okay with being accused of being a, a bit of an Anglophile. And um, I do believe Britain is our most important ally. Until uh, the president... Uh, well, the next one will be better on that front, I'm sure. Um, the Royal Navy is building two carriers now, none of which have neither of which have planes on them. And I understand there's a defense view coming up, and the, that course is, might be reversed. I don't know. I'd love to hear more about that uh, from you, because you probably have, I mean, I know you have more, more knowledge on this. Well, let, let's start on the basis that um, when the present uh, government came in in 2010, they were desperate to do something to stabilise, essentially, the stock price of UK PLC uh, and stabilise the markets. So they took a very quick decision that they would remove a certain amount out of the defence budget. They then conducted a strategic defence and security review which demonstrated their strategic illiteracy. And instead of actually facing a fiscal deficit, they actually introduced a strategic deficit. 
and they hacked our maritime patrol aircraft, our carriers and our harriers, all of which uh, went to the US Marine Corps, our latest modificated, modified uh, GR9s, uh, and they also took some army regiments as well. There was no strategic logic in those cuts. It was equal pain for each of the services. Within two months, um, we demonstrated why we needed our carriers, because the Libya crisis came up. Which was pushed politically mostly by Britain and France. Yeah, I, I'm not so sure that Britain and France actually wanted a war, to tell you the truth. I think that both our leaders probably went to the United Nations expecting to be vetoed by the Russians and the Chinese, <laughs> and maybe even were surprised to actually get it. Uh, and, you know, without the United States providing a considerable amount of backup, and the USS Kearsarge sitting offshore providing quite a lot of the combat power, uh, that, that campaign had to be jump-started. Now, we've got two carriers coming in, you're absolutely right, and the whole profile of the carriers and their air groups is determined by the cost profile and how we can afford them. Uh, it's still up to debate whether we're going to have one or two. There is rumour that the second carrier may be leased to a another country, um, and uh, that will be determined in the 2015 Strategic Defence Review. Now, I'm of the belief that currently all our political class needs to relearn how to use and threaten force. They generally don't understand it. Um, and every sort of strategic engagement I've seen in the last four or five years has demonstrated the inability to link military, diplomatic and economic uh, levers. Um, I don't expect any coherence to return to uh, UK defence for some considerable time. Um, at the moment, the emphasis seems to be in balancing the pain between the three services. And the simple logic that in future we're probably going to be involved in what I call high-impact, low-footprint operations, and then argues for a strong Air Force, Navy and Marines at the expense of the Army, I don't think is tolerable in a political class in the United Kingdom uh, that actually has quite a lot of investment in the counties in its Army, both the regular and the reserves. There's almost. I've said recently it's very unusual to have a large standing army in peacetime, uh, and especially for Britain. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it's something that actually has actually constrained our liberties in the past um, and, and ours. <laughs> well, we, well, well, we tried. <laughs> we tried. Um, but the fact of life is, it's good that we can laugh about this. We <laughs> we're not we we're not balancing properly uh, what we need for the future. Uh, now, as far as the carriers are concerned. Uh, they will be multi-role platforms. They won't just be carriers. When they first came in, I was captain of the Maritime Warfare Centre, and I said, please don't call them carriers. Call them large-deck aviation-capable platforms. Because you call what them What would be the new acronym for that? <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> well, yeah, well, LDAC. I yeah. mean, it's, but the fact of life is uh, they're going to be multi-purpose chunks of sovereignty for us. We're going to move them around the world, and you fill them up with what you need to to project power, either at sea or from the sea. And that's how we're going to permit in future. They'll be quite modular in that respect. And they will occasionally carry aircraft. Uh, they will certainly carry helicopters, but they'll be doing anything from humanitarian relief, as the Abraham Lincoln and the Vincent so, did so well off uh, Haiti and Indonesia. And at the top end, they'll be configured for war fighting. Um, my worry, and it's my worry with all big deck carriers, is how close to the action are they going to go in any future conflict. Um, I'm a great believer that, that we need a combination of the big deck carriers to provide the weight of attack, um, but also we need uh, street fighting jeep carriers. 
uh, and they're probably going to be the Amphibs with the F-35Bs and the smaller carriers of the European and Japanese type that we see in future. Um, but, you know, we're going to mix and match it how we can. Uh, my book, which I mentioned earlier, you know, is designed to try and get, um, try and get the Navy back on track uh, and address this issue of sea blindness in the United Kingdom. Brian, I know that we, we've had a few conversations about this in the past, and, and Evan, I'd love to hear from you on this too. Uh, when, we're, when we're looking at our own Navy and our, its, own, its own shortcomings, we'll put it that way, what would we like to see from our closest allies' Navy? I mean, we don't get to yeah, choose. I'm very, I'm, un, I'm very unfair to the Royal Navy because I, I, um, I tend to look at its force structure um, more as what would I like them to do to, to help us rather than what would I like them to do. But I look at I look at some of the decisions they've made. They've have, they have created, at least in fleet design, a magnificent one-eighth scale model of the U.S. Navy. It's got some aircraft carriers. It's got some cruisers and destroyers. It's got some attack submarines. It's got some ballistic missile submarines. It's got some amphibs. It's it's a and I and it's a one-eighth scale model. And I find myself thinking, wondering, that if I were sitting down and writing, trying to match. UK's defense strategy and its naval forces, um, I think that kind of a balanced fleet is out of balance. I don't believe that you have a, enough of a cruising navy. I don't think... Um, so, in my, in my view, I would like to see either the ballistic missile submarines or the carriers go away and in a perfect world, and that money turned into 20... <laughs> Brian, I have to say to you, if you take anything out of the British force structure, it immediately goes back to the Treasury. Right, well, I understand. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, if you take anything out, I mean, I have to say, you're absolutely right. It's always been the policy of the Royal Navy to be congruent you know, with, with the United States Navy. Um, it's also got to be a sufficient weight and size to be able to lead in Europe. We never want to be led by certain of our European partners in this respect. France! France! And, uh, France. <laughs> and also, um, and also, bless you, um, and also we've got to be able to undertake certain things nationally. <laughs> And think Falklands. We've got to That's have. That's true. We won't support you in every absolute yeah. instance. And so, and so, congruent at the top, leadership in Europe in a ad hoc coalition, but at the bottom, able to deal with our own national contingencies. That that is the basis for the Royal Navy, as I wrote it five years ago. And to a large extent, we're still running, running down that track. Um, and that's how the political class see it as well. We have to be able to do our national stuff. And the Falklands is the benchmark for that. Could we do another Falklands? Probably not, actually, because we don't have the fleet train, we don't have the resilience and the depth that we had in 1982. But it still bulks very large uh, in the calculations of what the United Kingdom needs to do. Um, you know what we're like. If anybody pushes us around, we're up for a fight, and we need to be able to do that. It's, um, uh, But, you know, I, I take Brian's uh, view. We are congruent. Uh, we always want to be that way, um, and we want to be able to have a seat at the table when the United States needs us. I'd like them not to be congruent. I'd like them to to have complimentary. More, I'd like them to have complimentary, right. right. You want frigates. I want I want the I want the Union Jack. You want the White Ensign actually. I want the white or the yeah, yeah the white ensign <laughs> in more places continuously than it is right. Yeah. But in fact actually you could have both. we just need to rebalance our armed forces in the United Kingdom. Yeah, we've got too many Tanks. We got too many heavy stuff, heavy metal that isn't at sea. We have that problem here. Yeah. But that, you know. Well, I want to go to last words now. 
Uh, I want to start with Evan. Um, so just two points. Um, one, I think this uh, debate over British force structure is really interesting, and it hits a what is likely to be an enduring problem um, for the United States and its allies. Uh, as the United States sees problems and strategic challenges proliferate, resources are still short. We are probably going to want to see our allies specialize more and more uh, to enable us to have these congruent forces. Um, as our allies look at us and start to have these questions that you raised about whether the United States will be there, uh, they're going to be reluctant to specialize if they don't know that the United States is going to be, uh, you know, coming to their aid, uh, and they're going to want more that, that more generalizable capability. So I think that's a that's kind of a core strategic debate that you're going to see play out um, in multiple regions over the next few years. Uh, the other issue I will. I'll mention, uh, at the risk of raising something entirely new at the, as we wind down, the other 800-pound floating uh, angry elephant um, that Brian sort of started to hint at, and that uh, affects both Britain and the United States and their uh, naval force structure is the undersea nuclear deterrent and uh, what the future of that is for, for both powers. So that's something that we're both going to have to grapple with. Brian? I have no intelligent last words except to thank you for this forum and uh and for this trip into this lovely hotel well thanks for being a part of it well, well i'll echo that but i do have something to say <laughs> <laughs> i think it's quite important at a time when uh we are seeing the return of mckinder we are seeing an alliance effectively uh, between russia and china uh and if you like it's the obverse of the china america understanding that actually squeeze russia uh, the, the Chinese and Russians are trying to squeeze the Western world. There's no doubt about that. That the countries of Rimland, um, and that's what I call the Anglosphere, India, Japan, have actually got to, got to find a way of actually dealing with this Eurasian uh, power block that is appearing before us. And the really good news for all of us is that maritime powers historically have always prevailed against land powers who are dominant on the Eurasian landmass. As long as we sustain our strength and we know what we're doing in terms of containing. And if I can parrot Mackinder, who said, he who commands the heartland commands the world. I would say in the 21st century, he who contains um, the heartland uh, will control the world. And that's what we have to stick to and we have to talk, tell our politicians about. Great. Well, I think that's a great, great place to end it. Thank you so much, listeners, for listening in. And uh, thank you to our guests. Thanks so much for participating. Good night.